Hello and welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. My name is Julian Carl, CEO and co-founder of Synergen Group. And once again, really happy to bring to you another great episode. So in today's episode, I speak with Anna Lucia McKay, who is the author of The Four Mindsets, How to Influence, Motivate and Lead High Performance Teams. So a couple of things really stuck out for me during this book. And the, the first one is that it's a really practical guide. There's a lot of things in there which I think you can really take away from the book and from the interview. And secondly, it really created a, a clear sense of alignment in my mind about a lot of the stuff that Anna Lucia talks about and a lot of the things that we do at Synergen. So I think you'll find it's a really great interview. So once again, would love to hear what you think. So if you feel like leaving us a review, that'd be great. Happy listening. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian speaks with leaders from around Australia to bring you their leadership story and share their insights about being a leader. To further help you build your leadership capability, Julian shares his own insights about leadership and the tools and techniques he uses as a leader. Welcome, Anna Lachia, to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really happy to have you on the show so that the listeners have a bit of an idea about who you are. Can you just share a little bit about who is Anna Lachia McKay? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. Pretty big question to start. Um, who am I? Well, I'm a mother and wife. I have twin boys. I originally grew up in the UK and moved to Australia about 25 years ago. And since I've been in this country, I arrived with qualifications and graduated in adult education and management. And since I arrived in this country, I've been very much um, working in the field of talent management, management and leadership and so on. So that's me in a nutshell today. I'm the Managing Director of HCM Global, we're a management consultancy, um, a lot of training and development courses for management and leadership. I'm also an editor for Harvard Business School. Right. How long have you been doing that one? Um, two years. Two years now. So I work um, in Asia Pacific for Harvard delivering to their corporate clients in the region, in the areas of um, leadership and management, innovation and creativity. Yeah, so, so very busy, I take it? Yes, very busy, but good busy. Good I love busy. my work, so it makes it a whole lot easier, yeah. So I wanted, I wanted to explore this book, and, and, and for the listeners out there, I, I actually bought this book uh, a few years ago as I was traveling traveling through the airport and it's the the four mindsets how to influence motivate and lead high performance teams why did you decide to to write this book I think I mean really uh, I decided I wanted to write a book that held all of my teachings day to day in one place um, I also have always been motivated to help people as much as I could and I just felt that managers and leaders out there, um, there's a piece of the puzzle that is missing right now, I think, and that is the whole element around what makes people tick. So I just wanted to write a book um, and explain some of the basics around what makes people tick and how to bring out the best in your people, how to unlock performance and potential. It's an area that I'm very passionate about. 
And although there's many people exploring it, I think um, there's not many people who are really going into human behavior and that whole element around what makes people tick. So that's what I was hoping to achieve by writing that book. Okay. I'd like to read a, a small excerpt if I can. And it's about something uh, which, sure. I, which I'm uh, particularly keen about. And it's the idea of the psychological contract. Yeah. So the psychological contract, uh, what yeah. is it and why is it so important? Every manager should understand the concept of the psychological contract. This unwritten contract has the ability to enhance or destroy everything you do. It's all about people. And as a manager, everything you do should relate to people. So you're able to give the, the listeners just a just yeah. a, a the high level view of your perspective of the, the importance of the psychological contract? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the simplest way to describe it is if you have an, empl um, an employment contract, um, you have a piece of paper and it's very explicit what needs to be achieved, what the expectations are of the employee and of the organisation. However, with a psychological contract, um, it is far more powerful than that. It's based on implied needs um, rather than explicit needs, which is obviously a very grey and ambiguous area. But when those needs are not met between two individuals who have a relationship, be it you know, in life or at work as a manager and employee, then things get a little bit out of kilter. So the psychological contract you could almost describe as a mental tally. So when you're... Um, in a relationship with someone, as I say, whether it's business or work, there's the perception of fairness. Um, what I put in and what I get out, is that pretty much equal? And likewise, what you put in and what you get out, is that equal? So we have this mental tally, and it's based all around perceptions about what I believe to be true, what I believe to be fair, and whether I trust you. And as I say, if that is out of kilter a little bit, then connection starts to break between the employer and the employee. And when that happens, the employee is less likely to go over and above for you um, and will just do basically the content of their job description. And obviously what we're trying to do as leaders is to unlock performance and potential. And unless that psychological contract is in place and it's steady and stable, you're not going to be able to do that. And, and do you find that many organisations and leaders that you've uh, worked with struggle to really establish a, a strong psychological contract with their people that uh, they work with? Um, absolutely, because few people know about it. Um, you know, I said about 15 years ago, um, it's not a new concept, but it's one that's not often talked about because it does sound wishy-washy, but the reality of it is it is so strong and it is the difference between, as I say, whether someone will go over and above for you or not. So the likelihood of most managers having heard about this and understanding the concept of it is very low. And in fact, you know, the HR people are not um, aware of it. Mm. So, yeah, um, the, the knowledge around this is, is not clear and, and it's very large. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm keen to, to start to explore the, the, the sort of whole idea or I suppose in the title of the book where it's obviously all about mindsets. So are you able yeah. to in, uh, explain at a high level because I will go into, I've got a lot of questions for you in detail about each of the, the four yeah. mindsets, but could you explain at a, yeah. a high level? Sure what the high-performance mindset model is? Yeah, absolutely. So it's based on the whole notion of, a mind, of mindset. 
So firstly, um, we need to be clear what a mindset is. And um, very simply, it's a way of thinking that will actually determine your behaviour, um, your attitude and your actions. And obviously your behaviour, attitude and actions will be linked to your results. So um, they can be conscious or unconscious. Um, you can have a mindset that's been built up over time, which is situational, or you can choose to have a mindset and put yourself into a frame of mind that will lead you down a pathway that, where you are more likely to succeed. So the model came from working with um, and researching, you know, hundreds and hundreds of high performers and asking them um, what makes them tick, asking them um, what is what are the conditions for them to go over and above for their leadership, for their leader or their manager, what is it that they need um, and what inspires them. And so the four mindsets came from that body of research and the four mindset model is um, based up of four clear mindsets. First one is emotional intelligence mindset. The second one is the connection mindset. The third one is the growth mindset. And the last one is the performance mindset. And so each of those mindsets are, are based around triggering um, certain actions by leaders uh, with their people to enable them to want to and be inspired to perform at that next level. So it was basically the fastest way to inspire and engage people for them to unlock discretionary efforts um, and to perform for you, I guess, in a nutshell. Okay. And is the the, the idea that, you know, someone that um, really is, is across all of this, that they can shift and move through each of the four mindsets depending on the, the needs of the people around them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a pathway, but it's, you don't have to do it in a linear fashion. It just suggests that if you want to, for example, get, have inspired people who trust and respect you, then the emotional intelligence mindset is the fastest way to elicit those results. You know, and if you want to build a confident team who are growing and learning, then the growth mindset is the fastest way to get there. And so I detail each mindset what strategies you need to bring about those results and those results are gained from the research from high performers um, and what they told us. So it's not linear, you can move around and it will depend on individuals. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm keen to, well, I've got some questions actually in regards to probably each, each of the four mindsets. Sure. I'd like to start with yeah. the emotional intelligence one if I can. And this idea of, of the manager as role model. So you yeah. are able to expand a little bit on your on your perception or your perspective on why this is such a key thing for a manager and leader to understand. The notion of the uh, manager as role model is such that in the workforce today, people do what they see. And so more than ever before, the role model is very important. And that role model is usually the leader or the manager, but can be informal leaders and colleagues too. So there are three key areas that the high performers told us um, that they value, and that is they value in their role model um, a caring nature. Um, people need to feel that they are cared for. Now, that's not a business word, and it's one that surprises um, quite a few people, but from a human behaviour perspective, humans need to feel 
that they are cared for in some way, shape or form, that they are not a number and that they actually matter. So that um, role modelling of caring is really important. They also um, have to feel um, that the leader is authentic and sincere, that they're not play-acting, they're not just trying to pander to their teams to get more out of them, but that they really um, do want to work with them, um, help them, show them, and in an authentic and sincere way. And then the last one of the role model today, which is probably one of my favourite words, is the consistency piece. What you find is those role models who are the most significant and the strongest and who inspire people the most are those whose behaviours are consistent. If you have a leader whose behaviour is inconsistent, then you will generate fear and anxiety in your team because they won't know what frame of mind you're in at any given time. And so what can happen is people shut down when they get fearful or anxious, they shut down and they stop talking. And of course, as a manager, that's the last thing you want from your team members because you need to know what is going on and what could be coming up down the track. So leader is role model. Um, I started um, the emotional intelligence mindset with that because it just has such a significant impact on the performance of your team. And, and when you're uh, doing work with leaders, do you find that the leaders you work with accept that idea or are actively conscious of the fact that they're a role model? Um, yes, I think more so today than before. They know that they're role models. They don't know what that means exactly. They don't know you know, what they need to show and demonstrate. Um, so they kind of wing it a little bit. They probably don't understand um, just how important, for example, fairness is. And most leaders would perceive that they are fair. Um, and indeed, they might be fair in the way that they deal with people. But the interesting thing with fairness is you've got to demonstrate it. You've got to showcase it. You can't rely on people to perceive it. So um, fairness is a real sort of make or break um, for a manager or leader. Yeah. And so in, in, within the emotional intelligence mindset, you also talk about the idea and, and you give some practicalities about how people can develop their levels of emotional intelligence. Are you able to give the listeners just a little bit of a, a few key things they should be thinking about in regards to that? Absolutely. So emotional intelligence, um, firstly, is critical to management and leadership going forward. Um, and in fact, if you read the World Business Forum Future of Jobs this year or late last year, it said that emotional intelligence, social skills, persuasion and influence are the key skills that people will need to have in the future. So it is absolutely critical. I think most people understand that emotional intelligence is important. Maybe 10 years ago, people didn't. So they thought it was a bit wishy-washy. So um, it is critical. It's going to be your differentiator going forward. Your competencies and your technical skills will not be your differentiator. It will be your EQ and your social skills and your ability with people. So saying that, the absolute number one place to start when it comes to emotional intelligence is self-awareness. Self-awareness is the cornerstone of emotional intelligence. If you don't know what makes you tick, if you don't know what brings out the best or the worst in you, you will not see that in other people. And so, one, it's good for you to know those things so that you can control perceptions around you um, and you understand the impact that you have as a leader. But two, it's highly correlated to empathy. So as I say, if you don't know what makes you sick, if you don't know your own strengths and weaknesses, if you don't know 
what your values are, um, which are related to your hot buttons and cold buttons. If you don't know what drives you and motivates you, you won't see it in other people. So self-awareness is the absolute starting point, followed by self-management and empathy. So those would be the three core competencies where you would start to research and read on. Are you seeing a, a big take-up of, of people saying, yes, this is important to, to have a bit of EQ? Oh, definitely. It, this is the time. It really is. I mean, I've been working in this since the mid-1990s, so a long time. Um, and now it is just right. Everyone, people who in the past, perhaps you're more left brain, perhaps you're engineers, um, who just didn't get it, didn't want to get it, um, didn't believe it. Everyone is onto it now. Everyone, we're at the stage now where everyone has heard about EQ, but they don't quite know what it is, but they know it's important. And so the interest level is sky high. So I'm interested in, in, in moving into the, the, the next uh, mindset, which is connection. And this idea of learned intuition. Are you able to expand a little bit more about yeah. what that is? Yeah, so I'm really interested in in intuition and have been for a long time. And I think most people feel that it's based on gut instincts. And indeed, that is a part of it. However, most intuition comes from the other side of the brain, the left side of the brain, which is to do with um, rationale and logic. So to be highly intuitive, most people think you've either got it or you haven't. and, And that's not right. You can teach intuition. Um, intuition comes from data, it comes from analysis, it comes from, as I talk in my speeches, about having your antenna up, and that is consciously watching and observing and wondering and reflecting about the things that are going on around you from a work perspective, and then using that information at some point down the track, you find that you'll draw information from that almost like data bank um, to make a decision. So that's objective data together with your gut feel will make you a much better decision-making problem builder. And likewise, go back to that future of jobs report, um, they highlighted that, you know, another core skill going forward is complex um, problem solving. And that comes from um, the people side and also the technical side. And so this intuition um, will fuel your decisions and your responses hugely. Nice. And, and, and again, I'm going to ask sort of the similar vein. How, how are leaders responding when you're introducing these ideas to them? Are they, are they really subscribing to the idea and getting on board? Is there any sort of resistance? No, not at all. I think because it makes sense. You know, I think when you are um, in the midst of a problem or you're making decisions or you're trying to innovate or you're trying to come up with new products, I mean, everyone's talking about creativity and innovation at the moment, but nobody quite knows how to do it unless you were naturally born that way. So if you can just turn both sides of the brain, which is the rationale and the logic data aside, plus the relationship, um, the gut field side, you're going to get better sources of information and data with which to make a decision. So they get it, they understand that, and it makes sense. And then it's good news because if they see themselves as not creative, um, all of a sudden um, they can see that creativity can come from all different areas and with lots of different data and information. So, yeah, people are interested in it. So you also talk about how to connect 
people to the business. And I, I think this is an interesting one because a lot of leaders that I come into contact with, I suppose, don't necessarily demonstrate that they're highly connected to the business. So um, how do you, how do we connect more people to the business? Okay. So I think what listeners will relate to um, in, in explaining this um, is, for example, the sort of power of why. Um, and Simon Sinek, you know, um, wrote the book on the whole why thing. When it comes to engaging people today, and again, it's very different from 25 years ago, people today need to understand how they fit in and how they are going to add value and how their micro-actions on a day-to-day basis will benefit the greater good. So as a leader and manager, you need to connect who that person is to what the business is trying to achieve. And you can only do that by understanding what makes that person tick, what their values are, what it is that motivates and inspire them, and then map that across to either the values of the business or the mission of the business or the, you know, the customer's clientele, the, the greater good. So once you've done that, people go to a whole other level of performance. They're, again, they rise above the crowd and they want to give more. So connecting people to the business and connecting people to the leader um, is particularly important if you're going to unlock potential and more performance. And is this something that leaders need to be constantly doing? So they, they need to be constantly checking in on the level of connection people have? Yep, they do. Because what happens is we spend a lot of time in the first 90 days or in the induction period which can be one week, it can be one day in some organisations. We do that, we try to do that, organisations try to do that. They give the messages, they say what we're here to do and they do it from a very high level. But during that induction phase, there's so much information coming at that person that they actually won't probably connect properly at that time. So you then have to keep, whether it's in your team meeting, sharing information, you have to keep your eye on that connection factor. So, you know, the higher that they are connected, the more resilient that they will be, the more they'll be able to take the knocks that will inevitably come, and the more likely they are to um, perform at a higher level. So, in answer to your question, there's a lot of leaders who don't quite understand or consciously do that. They think that it's been done in induction and in the early days, but it is something that you have to keep going back to and keep reminding. And it doesn't take a lot of effort. It's just reminding and sharing of information. And you also, in the during the connection mindset part of the book, talk about this idea of having a, a challenging conversation without breaking the connection. I think one of the things a lot of leaders yeah. struggle with are those challenging conversations because they're worried about what happens afterwards. So how do you suggest people go about having those conversations? <laughs> This is a key area that managers and leaders must, you know, either get training in or read up on because you're right. You know, if you ask a manager or a leader what is the hardest part of their job, having that challenging conversation will always come up in the top three, if not number one. And that's because you are dealing with people's emotions and also your own emotion. And so that um, makes people very sort of fearful or anxious because they don't want to do the right, wrong thing. People have the best intentions, but without the training um, and the knowledge, you can sometimes mess things up. So... A challenging conversation is one where 
the stakes are high, there's high emotion, and there could be a difference of opinion. And of course, you can see that usually one, two or three of those are in play in many conversations. So it's critical that leaders need to get more confident in having those conversations and keeping them as objective as possible and um, having them as often as possible so that your team get used to them and they're not such a big thing. It is a case of, okay, we need to sit down and have a chat about something. Take me through what happened last week. You know, it can be just a fact-finding mission and you can, you know, remove emotion a lot of the time, but people just are not equipped to have these conversations and then they do go pear-shaped or they go off on tangents and people come out of it feeling not good at all. So it is an area that I would highly suggest people read up on. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of leaders are really, really looking to their their HR and people and culture departments to provide them with some support and assistance in that area. That's right. And they should be providing support and assistance, but there's also a lot of leaders who like to hand over those conversations to HR um, and the people managers, and that is where things go wrong. You know, you are functionally responsible for your team and you must be well equipped to have these conversations just so that they don't, you know, they're not so daunting for you because, you know, that they are a nerve-wracking conversation for many. It's just as hard as the person receiving um, the conversation as the person giving it. Towards the start of the the, the growth mindset uh, part of the book, you talk about this idea of teaching people confidence. It's something which comes up a lot. So can you yeah. share with the listeners how they can do that? Yeah. So, again, there's a myth around confidence, and that is you've either got it or you haven't, um, or extroverts have it and introverts don't. There's all sorts of myths around it, and people certainly felt that you couldn't be taught it. And I'm always interested in looking at angles to teach people things such as intuition and confidence that most others think cannot be taught. The reality of it is confidence can absolutely be taught. Um, the, the first step is to understand what it is that is making someone not confident. And it usually comes from a, a few sources. The first one is that they're not confident in you know, the business, the products in the business. They don't quite understand what they're selling or what they're representing or how it all works. So there's a lack of confidence around the products. Or there's a lack of confidence around the processes um, in getting the products or the services out or the back end um, processes. So what you need to do is help people really understand and keep training in the process side of things. So you want people who are confident in the product, confident in what we're doing, how we're doing it, who we're serving and so on. Then we need to be really confident in the processes. The next part is you need to be confident, help people be confident in who they are. Um, And this is where self-awareness comes down to the employee level. So not just having managers that are self-aware, but employees who are self-aware. Because employees who are not self-aware tend to make mistakes, tend to get frustrated, tend to irritate people. Um, They don't understand the consequences of their actions. And so when those things happen, conflict can occur or frustration, and that knocks the confidence of that person around. So the more confident you are and the more self-aware you are, the less conflict you are likely to have. And conflict and difficult situations will reduce your confidence level. So, um, And then the, the last element is confidence with relationship, building relationships. 
um, having teams of people who understand, again, not just the leader what about what makes people tick, but at the grassroots level, um, what makes people tick, how to read people, how to build strong relations. But if you build competence in the product, the process, in people's self-awareness and their relationship building skills, you are far more likely to have a competent and confident team. And when you've got a competent and confident team, then you are ready to go to the next level, which is for people to be comfortable enough to step outside of their comfort zone. And when people step outside of their comfort zone, they are more likely to come up with good ideas and to innovate and create and um, better practices in the organization. So as leaders and managers, we need confident and competent teams. And so that is how we will go around building confidence in individuals, getting to the root of what is knocking them around, what is knocking their confidence levels. Mm. Mm. You also talk about the idea of the, the manager being a trainer. I, I'm not, not sure the leaders that I've worked yeah. with sort of see themselves as a trainer. So I'm <laughs> curious to explore this with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, there's a, a whole notion out there um, and, and Harvard articles around the leader is teacher. And this is becoming more and more important and leaders of the future will be teachers. So it doesn't mean to say that they're going to be, you know, in classroom every day or doing training courses every week, but they need to know the basics around how to develop people and how to train people. And they should be putting elements of training into their weekly team meetings, even if it's just five minutes or so. And leaders need to encourage their teams to want to learn and grow because this is highly motivational for the millennials and the new generations in our workforce and for other generations such as Gen X and baby boomers. People want to learn and grow. We are wired to want to be the best that we can be. So a leader should provide the vehicle and the opportunity and the motivation um, to to, to help people learn and to train. So the best way that leaders can do that, I think I mentioned that chapter, is the first step would be to understand what makes adult learners tick. Um, and so when you are teaching adults, one of the key things that are really important for them to um, learn is that you always have to show them the what's in it for them. So as adults, Unlike children, you can download information to them, but with adults, in order for them to learn and retain and apply information, you have to connect it again to um, the, the picture. And then their minds open and they are ready to learn. So that's some of the key elements. Another thing with um, adult learners is they are very fearful. Um, behavior as such when you become an adult is that, you're fear, that you have a fear of failure in some people and, and you get anxious. So as a trainer, as a leader who is training and coaching many people, you have to do whatever you can to remove that fear and anxiety to open up the mind of your people to learn, retain and apply. So it's a big job, but it doesn't have to be too daunting. But it's a very necessary motivational factor for our workforces today. Mm. It, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think, you know, I obviously work in training and I, a lot of the leaders that don't see themselves having that responsibility of, of, of training, they tend to no. think that that's up it's, to trainers in the business. No, not anymore. So yes, the trainers in the business um, will take 
the main workload, but um, the leader of the future and, and, you know, going back to the World Economic Forum, the future of jobs, the differentiating factor is going to be social skills, influence, persuasion. And I think I missed last time teaching others. If you go to the report, it actually says teaching others and emotional intelligence. It is going to become a differentiator. Mm-hmm. So, so if someone uh, does want to really build their training skill in terms of their, their teams, where would you suggest mm-hmm. they start? Well, I think um, if I was a leader today, it doesn't all have to be down to you. You will have a particular area that you're very strong at and very passionate about. Well, that should be your subject. But I would look within the team and also identify who in the team has a particular special skill that they can impart to the rest of the team. So it doesn't have to be all on you. Um, so you may just put a little, you know, log together that this skill is with this person. I, um, you, you may have someone in your team who is excellent um, from an induction purpose. But just look at the skills in your team and put together a little timetable of um, training sessions. And again, it can be five minutes. It doesn't have to be long-winded. Um, make your team meetings much more inspirational. Most team meetings out there are so boring. But if you can put that inspirational element in where, you know, okay, today we're going to spend five minutes on X and engage different people at different times, you're going to increase participation, you're going to increase engagement, you're going to increase inspiration, um, and you're going to increase the skill level of your team. And it could be that you just pick up an article one week that you read and think, hey, guys, let's have a think about this. You know, this article is saying, you know, it's talking about intuition or this article is talking about emotional intelligence. What do we think on this? So it can be really simple. It doesn't need to be a lot of preparation, but it is let's expand the minds of our team. And that will really motivate them. Our people today want to grow and learn. And so this is a really important element to keeping them engaged and motivated. Mm. Can you also talk about, the major being a coach and mentor, which is obviously something I'm particularly passionate about. So what's your distinction between coach and mentor? It's the age-old question, isn't it? (laughs) Well, so a coach, it's usually um, to do with a skill, um, skill skill-based coaching. A mentor is a journey, is a development journey, taking someone on a journey to go to the next level perhaps in their career. Um, there's no definite endpoint, whereas with coaching, there usually is because once that person has learned the skill, whatever that may be, that um, is that coaching element finished. So mentoring is more long-term, it's more personal development, whereas coaching is more skill-based. Would you agree? Absolutely. I was so happy because <laughs> it, it spends right. a whole... Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, spend the whole episode debating that, but I think you're you're very much right that you know, that's right. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Coaching is about a specific skill area, or, or and whether it be you know a, a sales as an example, teaching someone selling skills or teaching someone that's right technical skills, and the mentoring I find can be far more ambiguous in that you're not always quite sure where it's going to go. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Yeah. Not as predetermined. Do you have any recommendations for people on how they can build their skill set in those two areas of coaching and mentoring? Um, I think emotional intelligence 
is a key part of it. Again, in order to open up the minds of your coaches and mentees, you've got to understand what makes them tick and what that particular person that you're coaching or mentoring makes them tick. What are their hot buttons? Um, what inspires them? What motivates them? You have to you know, have that caring nature. You have to really want to help them um, because people can feel it. Uh, it goes back to that role model, really. And what you find is coaches and mentors are usually really good role models. And one of the, you know, there's lots of skills that you can use. Um, there's different techniques in how to impart, um, how to coach a skill. Uh, and then there's the good old grow um, development framework that can really help coach people, which I put in the book, which I think is really helpful. And in fact, the grow framework helps for any situation um, where people are sort of throwing around a few ideas. So it's very powerful. Um, and it's one that you know, I think I even put in the book, you know, I said to a CEO a few years ago, of everything that you've ever learned in your life, and he had obviously been to every training course there was, what's the one thing that stood out to you? And he said, for sure, the growth straight away, instantly. He said, I use it every single day. When I've got executives or people in my room and we're, we're trying to solve a problem or I'm, I'm coaching them, I use it to grow. And that is, okay, guys, what is our goal here? Let's get down to that. Then the R, which is the reality. So what is the reality? What is happening now? Let's look at that. Let's analyze that. Okay, so what are our options here is the O for options, the sounding board throwing around ideas on how to solve it. And then the W, okay, what are we actually going to do now? So um, I feel that that's a really powerful four-step process in, in, helping, in helping people be coached. Yeah. Yeah, it's something we, uh, we share with people who do our programs as well, that it's, it's, it's just such, a, such an effective framework and can be used in a, in a variety of applications, which I think makes it even more useful. That's right, exactly. It's really worth it. Um, learning it off by heart because you will once you've got it cemented in your mind you'll use it all the time you'll use it with yourself you know when you're just sitting down on your own thinking okay hey, what am I going to do with this situation I've got a complex problem here how am I going to solve it grow G-R-O-W will help you every time it's just a good little framework so I'd like to, to move into the final mindset now which is all about the performance and uh, in one of the chapters yeah. you talk about how leaders can increase focus and accountability. And I think that's something that's really important to leaders at the moment is, you know, making their people accountable. So where should they start and what should they do? Yeah, for sure where they have to start or go back to and reaffirm is the expectation. So what you find is leaders today are not 100% clear in articulating their expectations and that's the expectations that they have as the manager the expectations from a team level and the expectations of a role or KPI level. So people are really wishy-washy with this. And if they have set the expectations again, it was way back in the induction period or when that first when that person first came on board. And so probably a lot of that has been diluted now. And so I would strongly suggest that leaders need to think about their teams and think, okay, are my teams 100% clear on the expectations that I have of them, that the business has of them, that the role has of them with the KPIs? And more often than not, they can't answer yes to that. They kind of say, yeah, I think so. They're pretty much on it. You know, they've got a job description. We have, you know, I spoke to them when they started, but 
the reality of it is that expectation setting process is key. And the better you set expectations, the less likely you are going to have a crucial conversation. So if people are really clear on what you expect of them, then they are accountable. And that's the second piece. You hold them accountable and they know that you're going to be consistent in holding them accountable. Then they will self-regulate. And it is far less likely that they will go to a point where um, you need to have a crucial conversation because they, they, they will deliver to you. And if they're not delivering to you and you are consistently following up with them, there will come a point where they will decide this job isn't for me or they'll want to sit down and have a chat to you. So expectations is, is critical. So my number one piece of advice for focus and accountability is just go back to asking yourself the question, are my team 100% clear on all levels of what my expectation is of them? And, and if, they, if they discover as they do that piece of self-reflection that they don't believe their people are clear, do you have any sort of, sort yeah. of techniques you use to make sure that people are, are clear? I would, and I usually manage to find in most of my classes a, a situation where uh, they could go back to their office and, and, and sit down and have a chat with their people. And it doesn't have to be as heavy as I'm making out. It's just, it's so critical. I'm, I'm making it sound quite heavy. But, you know, it could be they've just been to the, the annual conference or they've just come back from the training session or whatever it is. It's New Year. Let's, you know, reset expectations. Let's make sure, team, we're all on the same page. We've got the new year ahead, whether that's the financial new year, the calendar new year, or it could be we're in the last quarter, guys. Um, let's just make sure we're all on the same page. It doesn't have to be heavy, but just get your out of your team, whether as, as a team and say, okay, this is what we need to be focusing on or individually or and, or, and individually and, uh, so that you are just on the same page. That's all this is. Um, it's a check-in. So it doesn't have to be heavy. It's a check-in. How are we going? Where are you up to? Um, and let's be really clear on what needs to happen in this next month quarter, half year, whatever it is. Mm. So a leader or manager should be able to do that at any time. They could do it in their team meeting. Absolutely agree. So the, the final part of the, the book I'd really like to explore, and I, I think this is going to, this will be very, really helpful for some of the listeners, is this idea of how to conduct a best practice performance review. Because it's an area which people find challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's linked to having that crucial conversation. Um, I think, you know, my best pieces of advice when it comes to that performance review time is that, again, this should be an inspirational meeting, <laughs> whereas in actual fact, most people, both parties go to it and they just find it a bore um, or it's something that we've got to do because it's that time of year and HR and on, or on our back. It's, but it's, we need to change our mindset around that. We need to go into that and think, okay, this is a fantastic opportunity for me to re-inspire or re-motivate this person um, and go back to that setting of expectations and celebrate what has gone really well this year. And also let's talk about the challenges, you know, what could have gone better upon reflection? What did you think about X, Y, Z? So we make it really heavy, but I think it's just, it's an honest conversation where we sit down, we ask lots of questions, and we try and come up with a plan for how the year ahead is going to look and come up with objectives. I think what where managers typically go wrong is they wait 
until it comes round to have the performance conversation when we should be actually having those performance conversations through the year. And the sooner you can get your people um, normalized to that, that they expect that, the better, because then it will diffuse that awkwardness because it will just become the new normal. So performance appraisal is a check-in process. It's supposed to be an inspirational process. Um, I think the other thing that happens is the worst thing you can do is surprise people. So it could be, you know, a month or so ago you did clock that this person did something in particular and then you wait for the performance review process to use that as an example to demonstrate how they were or were not accountable or whatever it was. That's really shocking for that person. Um, it will break connection. You need to have the conversation in the moment and decide whether, you know, that comp that particular situation can slip this time or whether um, you need to raise it. So they, you need to be having them a lot of the time. You need to diffuse them. They need to be inspirational and motivational and there should never be any surprises. It is just a roundup of everything that we chatted about this year. But the problem is most managers wait for that once a year situation to have this conversation and therefore it's really tricky and emotional. All right, and if, if people want to find out more about you, where should they go and uh, how can they find you? So they can go to my website, analyticiamackay.com, also hbmglobal.biz. And then obviously my book, The Four Mindset, if they are interested in the content of today, they might find that the book will be a good little coaching guide for either them to take themselves through or to use to coach their people in their team. And any last words on leadership? Oh, goodness me. Last words on leadership. Be real. Be, you know, today people relate to real people. You know, be authentic. Bring your real self to work. Um, that's how you build trust. People need to know you. Obviously, there is a line, but, you know, we used to say years ago, I don't bring my personal life to work. Well, the reality of it is our personal and our work life cross over. So you need to share who you are. You need to talk to your people. You need to connect with them. And how they connect with you is knowing who you are as a person, that you're a father, you've got children, this is your hobby, what you enjoy. So just be real, be honest, and be humble. You know, we sometimes get things wrong and just be humble with that. Thank you, Anna Chi McKay, for being part of our podcast. Really appreciate it. I am going to suggest that all the listeners go out and, and buy your book because I do think that there is so much gold in, in here that we could have spent multiple episodes uh, chatting about it. So thank you so much for being part of the podcast. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it and hope to catch up again sometime. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Synergy and Leadership Podcast. I trust you found it interesting. A couple of things. If you could go online and leave a review of the podcast, that would be great. Really help us in uh, spreading awareness of the podcast. Happy for you to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. And if you want to shoot me through an email, julian at synergygroup.com.au. See you next time.